Lord God, we thank you for revealing in your, wor- in your word where your world is heading. Thank you that you've made that clear. We thank you for Psalm 2, and we pray that these ancient words would be a living word to us today, and that we would live our lives in the light of them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's hear the word of the Lord together, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Back in 1989, the American political philosopher Francis Fukuyama uh, published a famous essay titled The End of History, and it was about his belief that free market, liberal democracy had won the day, and this would become the world's final form of government. And for a couple of decades, his thesis seemed to be right, and that was where the world was clearly heading. Now, 25 years on, his prophecy is not looking so certain anymore. Uh, political commentators observe that liberal democracy is in crisis. Now, we live in uncertain times. And who would dare to stand up and declaim that they know where the world is heading? Well, point is we do know, in an ultimate sense, because God has revealed it in his word, and not least here in Psalm 2. Psalms 1 and Psalm 2 are an introduction. They are, if you like, a gateway to the book of Psalms. Psalm 1, we looked at last week, presented us with these two ways to live. We looked at the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And the point was that each of us needs to choose. Psalm 1 was individual, about you. Psalm 2 is global. It's saying that I need to know not just where I'm going, but I need to know where the world is going, where history is heading. And I need to make sure I'm on the right side of history. It's saying we need to understand that the world has been promised to the Messiah. He is on the throne. He is soon to return. And we need to live in the light of that reality and get our lives in line with that. But this reality is something that the world does not accept. And that is where the psalm begins with rebel rulers. Psalm 1 begins... Uh, We looked at last week, Psalm 1 began with the way of the sinner. This is what that looks like when it goes international. So the focus here is not just on individuals, but it's on nations and peoples, kings and rulers. And you'll see that they're raging and they're plotting against the Lord, taking counsel together against God and his king. So verse 1, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The anointed there is the king. The rebel rulers, it says, are ganging up together against him. They're plotting against God. The word for plotting there in verse 1 is actually the word we had last week, 
which was translated meditate in Psalm 1. So instead of meditating on God's word and how to go God's way, these guys are plotting about how to go their own way. Notice they're rebelling because they see the rule of God and the rule of his king as being oppressive and restrictive and enslaving, and they want to break free from it. So verse 2, they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's the very essence of sin, isn't it? That sin is not just doing naughty things, it's rejecting God's rule. And we see this attitude in our own individual lives, an attitude that people have of, you know, I'm not going to go God's way. It's narrow, it's restrictive. You know, I'll live my life as I want to live it. I'll follow my desires. I won't submit to his rules. That's sort of attitude. But the focus in this psalm is on that sort of rebellion against God and his king on the big scale, so in history, not just in the individual life, in nations, in governments, in politics, in authorities, in legislation. So it's the sort of thing that we see expressed in the spread of anti-Christian religious extremism, radical Islam, for example. Uh, we see it in the West in, on the big scale in secularization, the spread of neo-Darwinism, the spread of the belief that science has done away with God. We see it in legislation, which rejects biblical morality, whether that's in sexuality or marriage or abortion. And we see it in the rise of authoritarian powers in the world that oppose the Lord and his king. And the point is, we shouldn't be surprised by any of this because Psalm 2 tells us to expect it. This rebellion of the authorities against the Lord, not just individuals, but the authorities against the Lord and his king, it came to a head in the death of Jesus. So in Acts 4.25, those early believers quote these first few verses of Psalm 2 and they then say to God, for truly in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. There are the kings and rulers of Psalm 2. Along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, there are the nations and peoples that Psalm 2 mentions. And then the believers pray, Lord, look upon their threats. Look upon the threats of the authorities. So Peter and John had just been in prison for their faith. So you see how the authorities' hatred of the Lord and his king, it spills over into hatred of his people. And so when we read today of authorities around the world persecuting Christians, followers of Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised. Psalm 2 tells us to expect it. It is because the authorities reject the Lord God and his king. But verse 1 says that the nation's raging like this and the people's plotting against the Lord and his king. It says in verse 1 that this is in vain. Why? Why is it pointless plotting against the Lord and his king? We turn secondly from the rebel rulers to our second point, divine derision. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Earlier this year at Wembley, they had the, uh, the heavyweight title fight uh, between Anthony Joshua and Vladimir Klitschko, and maybe you stayed up to watch it, or maybe not. But... Um, Klitschko, the Ukrainian champion, has this two-year-old daughter. Imagine Klitschko's two-year-old daughter went up to Joshua after the fight and said, yeah, Joshua's six foot six and he's sort of solid muscle. 17 stone of it. And this little two-year-old says to him, 
I hate you. I hate you for beating my daddy. And I'm going to beat you up. I'm going to knock you over. And she starts flailing around with her tiny little fists against this huge giant of a guy's calf muscles. <clears throat> what do you think Joshua's response would be? I think he'd just laugh, wouldn't he? Well, that is God's response in this psalm to the pointless plotting of the world's authorities against him and his king. He says, he who sits in the heavens laughs, in verse 4. He laughs because he's in heaven. He's the all-powerful creator, ruler of everything. Rebelling against his rule, it is a joke. It's pathetic. And he mocks them. He says, the Lord holds them in derision. This rebellion of the authorities against God is laughable because... It says the Lord has appointed and established his own king. So you look at verse 6. He says, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion was the hill on which Jerusalem was built. God appointed David as his king. And after David, there were a succession of kings in the line of David. But these kings were just a shadow of the coming ultimate king, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. Because God has appointed Jesus as the king, nothing can stop him. And so rebellion against him and his rule is futile, it's laughable. But we could say it's also no joke. So verse 5 says, then the Lord will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. So Jesus being appointed by God as king is a terrifying truth for rebels. So it's no laughing matter for them. Because if you take on God and his king, it is not going to end well. And that is our third point, global government. Ask of me, it says in verse 8, and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. In this third section here, so verse 7, basically the, the Messianic king reports what the Lord says to him. So, if you look at verse 7, I, that is the king, will tell of the decree, the Lord, that is God, said to me, the king, you are my son. The Davidic kings were actually called the son of God, sons of God, that was their title. But this title was fulfilled in an ultimate sense in Jesus, the ultimate king, the Christ. So he was the son of God who came from the Father, full of grace, and truth. So at the baptism of Jesus, God declares, this is my beloved son. But the supreme declaration of Jesus being the son of God was his resurrection. And that's why in Acts 13, 32, Peter stands up and he says this, he says, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So you see, the resurrection of Jesus was the supreme declaration by God that Jesus was his son, the son of God, the king. So Romans 1.4 says he was declared to be the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. Raised from the dead, ascended to, the, to heaven, crowned as king. So the reign of the Son of God that Psalm 2 reveals to us, that has now begun with the exaltation of Jesus. And the world has been put on notice that his reign has begun. Now this changes everything, doesn't it? We had, um, early this year, one of our 
events that we put on, lunchtime interview and talk. We had a guy called Michael Farmer, and if you're here for that one, so he's a, a self-made multi-millionaire, made his fortune, money in the, in the city, doing commodity trading, metals trading in particular. And he now manages a hedge fund um, which has $2.3 billion of assets. It's one of the largest in the world. And he was sharing that for the first 35 years of his life, so he's now 70, for the first 35 years of his life, like a game of two halves, God didn't feature. But then he says one night, age 35, everything changed pretty dramatically. So he woke up in bed in the middle of the night and he heard a voice saying to him, Michael. And he says before his eyes, he saw a bright light and the words, Jesus is the Son of God. And it struck him there and then that if, if that is true, if Jesus really is the Son of God, it changes everything. And he went down to breakfast that morning, a changed man, and his, his wife was not a little bit surprised by this and shocked. But he began that very day to follow Jesus as king. And 35 years on, he's still living in the light of that reality. You see that Jesus is the Son of God. It is a game changer for us as individuals and for the world. Because in verse 8, God says to him, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You see, the world now belongs to the Messiah. It's been given to him by God to rule over. And rule he will. And those who oppose him he will overthrow, verse 9 says. So verse 9 says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Sometimes, I guess, being a rebel is thought of as being a little bit cool, you know, a bit edgy if you're a rebel. You know, oh, I'm such a rebel. I'm sort of James Dean character or, you know, I'm, I'm a sort of Jack Sparrow pirate of the Caribbean. That's me. Or oh, I'm a bit of a rebel and it's cool. Or, you know, I'm Katniss Everdeen in Hunger Games or however you picked yourself. But, you know, being a rebel, it's thought of as being a cool thing to be. Being a rebel against God's king is not cool. It's crazy, it's madness, because you're putting yourself on a collision course with absolute power. So in Psalm 1, we saw last week God's enemies are likened to chaff in the wind. And here in Psalm 2, they're likened to a pot which is shattered into pieces by a rod of iron. Now, is this the Jesus? Is this the Jesus you believe in? It's not by any means the full picture in the Bible, but it is a very important piece of the biblical jigsaw in building up the portrait of Jesus. So when we get to Psalm 23, which will be a, a while in this series, um, but in Psalm 23, the Lord is a loving, caring shepherd to his people. But towards those who oppose him, he is frightening. And that is the point here in Psalm 2. In the... Uh, the Fast and Furious film franchise. I don't know if I'm allowed to quote from this in the lunchtime talks, but um, we cater for the full cultural spectrum here on the barge. So Francis Fukuyama to Fast and Furious. But uh, the main protagonist is a guy called Dom Toretto, played by Vin Diesel. This isn't a recommendation to watch it, by the way. Um, but for him, family is everything. So towards his family, he's loving, he's tender, he's caring. You know, he's a family guy. Do anything for them. But if you're his enemy, you get to experience his anger and his wrath. Now, it's the same with Jesus, if you'll excuse the parallel. 
that with his family, if you like, he's the, the sort of the Jesus of the children's Bible. You know, those pictures of Jesus with little children in his arms and lambs skipping around and so on. But with his enemies, he's scary. He's a conquering king who will wipe out all who oppose his rule when he returns in glory and power. So verse 9 here is quoted in the New Testament in Revelation in 12.5 and 19.15, which says, He will rule them, speaking of Jesus, He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now this is the real Jesus and this is where the world is heading. So it's not like horse racing where it's sort of anyone's guess which horse you should put your money on or it's not like an election where you never really know who's going to how things are going to turn out, who's going to win the day. This is different. It's saying the outcome is not in the balance. This is what is going to happen. Now, as we close, what should we do? That's the final of, of the four sections. Two things. Firstly, be warned. We'll do them in the reverse order to the sheet there. So firstly, be warned. Verse 10 says, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Verse 12 goes on, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. God calls us here to face reality. Jesus is king, and you're not, I'm not. And so living as if we are king, it's saying it's just fantasy land. And when the true king returns, the son of God, you don't want to be on the wrong side of him. So this is not somebody to mess with. And so the Bible says that now effectively is amnesty time, if we can call it that when we can sort of take off our own little crowns and put them in that amnesty bin and put them at the feet of the Son of God and find forgiveness. So in his mercy and love, God calls us there in the final verse to take refuge in his Son. The last bit says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him, in the Son. And that's very striking, isn't it, the way that's put, that we are to take refuge from the Son in the Son. Isn't that striking? We take refuge from the Son of God in the Son of God. And Psalm 2 ends where Psalm 1 began, with blessing from God. But that is what God promises those who receive Jesus as King. A while back, um, I locked my bike up to a lamppost in South Quay, so I'd come back from a meeting uh, down at the Ombudsman with these guys here. Um, see, of course, we're running. And I found a little note on it from security. And the note said, this cycle has been illegally parked. A note has been made of your details, and further instance may result in further action being taken. My mind boggled as to what that was going to be. Now, that was a merciful message. I didn't know I'd parked illegally, but these, the authorities there were fully within their rights to have removed my lock and my bike and taken it away and crushed it into little pieces or whatever they do with these things. And I wouldn't have had a leg to stand on or a a bike to ride home on. Now, end of Psalm 2 is like that. It's a merciful message from God. It's an invitation and it's a warning to take refuge in Jesus while there's still time before he returns. So firstly, be warned, and then secondly, be wise. The wise response is to take refuge in Jesus and to submit to Jesus as God's king. So you look at verse 10, it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Verse 11 goes on, Serve the Lord with fear. So notice there in verse 11, it's about a change of management. Serve the Lord 
We're to live to serve him. So we're not just to believe in him, we're to serve him as king. And there in verse 11 it says we're to do that, serve the Lord with fear, not some sort of cringing terror, but a right reverence, recognizing who he is, his power. So this king rules over those that he rescues. Serve the Lord with fear. Verse 11 goes on, rejoice with trembling. As the old Charles Wesley hymn begins, rejoice, the Lord is king. It's wonderful news, rejoice, the Lord is king. But notice again, we rejoice with, verse 11, with trembling. So in awe of him. So you've got joy and reverence going together. It's not either or, it's both, joy and reverence. And verse 12 goes on, kiss the sun. And that isn't a sort of romantic kiss. Uh, in the ancient world, this was an act of homage. It was a sign of submission that you kiss the feet of the king, bowing before him. Now this is saying, this is the wise response to the king that God has appointed. In the wider church today, we hear about the therapist Jesus, the therapist Jesus who is here to sort out our problems and tell us how amazing and valuable we are. Or we hear about the life coach Jesus who we're told is here to help us fulfill our dreams. Or we're told about the open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what. What about King Jesus of Psalm 2? The one appointed by God to rule the world. He's not here to serve me. We're here to serve him. It's the other way around. Now I wonder, is that how we see life? Do we see life as being about serving this king, living under his rule, his loving rule, as he rules us through his word? So bringing our lives increasingly under that loving rule, in this 500th uh, anniversary year of the Reformation, that's the sort of personal daily Reformation that God calls us to, under his word, the word of the king. You see, the rulers of the earth are told to do this, aren't they, in verse 10? Uh, O kings, O rulers, they're to do this. And so we should pray for those in authority to be wise, to submit to the rule of the king, Jesus. But we need to make sure we're doing it ourselves as well as individuals, even if we're not rulers. So this psalm is telling us we live in a rebel world, a world in futile rebellion against God and his king. But the son will rule, His rule has begun. His enemies will be overthrown. People speak about getting on the right side of history. Well, this is saying that means getting on the right side of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ, because this is where the world is heading. So be warned and be wise. Well, let me pray that for us, and then there's time for questions. Lord God, we thank you for revealing where everything is heading. We thank you for the rule of your Son, that it has begun with his death and resurrection and exaltation to your right hand. We thank you that he's going to return in glory and power. And we pray that we would be those who take the warning to heart and who are wise and who submit to him and serve him and take refuge in him. We pray this for his name's sake. Amen.